Hello, and welcome to another episode of Young Professionals in Energy podcast. For this episode, we had one of my very best friends, Todd Wolf, who was gracious enough to give us his time and sit down with me on a Saturday morning while we uh, enjoyed some wine together uh, after a very, very fun and eventful Friday night. Um, and Todd's just one of the absolute best guys that I know. He's uh, the VP of Operations for Bison Oil and Gas, which is a small private upstream operator uh, without, with assets throughout the United States. Uh, he's a wealth of technical knowledge uh, around what is mechanically required to drill oil and gas wells and has built a fantastic career for himself. Uh, we had a wonderful time just chatting about technical items uh, in oil and gas and energy in general. So we hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, all right. It is Saturday morning, and we are sitting here in Denver, Colorado. I'm sitting here with one of my very, very good friends, uh, Todd Wolf. Uh, Todd, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, thank you. Oh, man. So Todd is a VP of operations at uh, Bison Oil and Gas. Uh, they're a local upstream oil and gas operator here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, they've got assets in northern Colorado, and uh, frankly, Todd's just the man with them. Yeah. So Todd, That'd be the it's, hardest ask it's, of the day for me. It's uh, it's it's Saturday morning. Let's uh, you know, you are you are a well-respected uh, engineer in town who has uh, elevated himself to uh, managerial executive level for a local oil and gas company. You know, um, we've been friends for a long time, but I I wanna I wanna kind of step through for our listeners uh, everything that you've done as a career, uh, you know, kind of walk through your career a little bit and then talk about the company and then talk about the oil and gas space in Colorado uh, and, and what you think it means to work in oil and gas. Uh, so we have a lot to cover, which is totally fine. Um, but yeah, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, what's, what's your background? How'd you get started uh, as an engineer? Where are you from? Well, you're, from, you're Canadian, first of all, playing hockey today, played hockey last night. You stoked about that? I, I am, yeah. yeah. So I'm excited. Did you win to, last uh, night? No, we did not win last night, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> it's a close game, though, but it was. Uh, yeah. But no, hopefully, hopefully today goes better than yesterday, that's for sure. In the, <laughs> the hockey realm. I'm sure it will. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You guys are going to win this tournament. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, tell, tell us about your background. Tell, tell us about where, where you're from and, and how you got into oil and gas. And yeah. How did you start off your career? Okay, so originally I'm from uh, Calgary, Canada. Um, I've uh, been in the oil and gas industry now for 19 years. Um, I, ironically, uh, because of advice from other family members, did everything I could to not go into oil and gas. And yet, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> here I am right now. So A thousand percent. Yeah. yeah so I it's, with that. it's been a, an interesting journey to say the least. Um, but honestly, I look back on it and I don't regret it at all. I, the, the, it's been a lot of ups and downs, but it's been a fantastic last 19 years on the overall. And, uh, and even though I tried not to go into it, I'm glad I did. Absolutely. So you, you studied engineering in Canada, right? Mm -hmm. And then you, you traveled quite a bit throughout the world, right? I did. I did a lot of traveling both on my, my personal time and then also through work. So, um, uh, 
I mean, as fate would have it, within a year of uh, of working in the industry, uh, things changed. Obviously, how, how so? What changed? So the place that I had signed up for was a small company bought out by a mid-sized company bought out by a large company all within a year, and okay. so it was it was shut down that location and uh, says mass layoff. <laughs> and so it was either uh, we have similar career beginnings. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> Yeah, when I, I when I got laid off from Encana six months in. Yeah I, <laughs> yeah, I got also mass laid off one time when I was working for Ericsson Cell Phones as an intern. So within a year of graduation, I'd been mass laid off twice. So it was a good intro to corporate America. And then I realized it wasn't just the oil field that's harsh. It's every industry that's harsh. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and then at that point, I kind of decided... I wanted to go into something that was interesting and challenging, and uh, the oil field is is all of that. I mean, the, the oil field is the most challenging stuff you're ever going to deal with, and uh, and and it really does captivate you because because there are so many challenges, you are constantly being pushed, and to strive to do better and to be better, and uh, and that appeal of the industry really kind of stuck with me because um, I figured if, it, if it, I'm going to have to deal with a cutthroat corporate America, I wanted to be dealing with something that uh, would keep my interest and uh, push me and make me be a better engineer. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and truly, when I started off, it was all about the engineering. That's fun. Yeah. No, you, you've, you've had very technical roles over the course of your career. Um, but, and I, I like that you've worked outside of just the U.S. I mean, you, you live in Colorado now, where we obviously that's how we know each other and how we've met. But yeah, I, I love your stories about uh, working in uh, the U.K. Uh, and offshore. And uh, what, as far as traveling uh, for work, what's what's one of your favorite experiences? What, what comes to mind? <laughs> well, a, a lot of them can't be said on this podcast. No, but, they can be uh, said. Anything can be said. But, uh, <laughs> no, um, I mean, I, I, there's so many great travel stories. Uh, I think when I was working in the UK, I was working in, uh, in uh, a sustaining engineering design role uh, for motors, downhole drilling motors. And uh, one thing that was really enjoyable was that sometimes we would have to go to locations to help out uh, with their with with any kind of design needs that they had, you know what I mean. So if they had they had like a, a had like a a problem with the motors that took more involvement than just than just what we could we could give them from I mean a thousand miles away. Yeah. Then we'd have to show up on location and just see how they were building them, go through their processes and see if there was something else more there that there could be other issues that that could add to it and also to better just understand the problems they're dealing with because a lot of times you just have to kind of be there to kind of feel it. And, um, and due to that, I got to travel around to a lot of amazing places all over the world. I, I, got a, I traveled to, to uh, Russia, to the... I mean, numerous places in the Middle East, um, numerous so places you were, in Asia. You were, a, you were a problem solver for a very specific technology mm -hmm. that you then got to go and troubleshoot issues all yeah. around the world. Yeah, so the yeah. downhole drilling motor is, for directional drilling, it's 
the original way that directional drilling started. So it's it's how when people say that they do directional drill, drill wells, horizontal wells, yeah. yeah, and then and then it led into horizontal wells exactly. Yeah. So it's uh it's it's what kind of started off the whole revolution in that way, and which for, which really grew the industry in so many ways. Yeah. But it's such a simple concept. So, so all you, it is, you were present during the development of that technology. No. No, this right. technology was uh, developed, I think, back in the 40s or 50s. Even. Yeah. I um, mean, it, rotor stator, the helical design, having a different number, mm -hmm. right? I mean, no one's going to know what that means, but you can but Google it. I, I can it explain out. it really quickly. Okay. Because um, yeah. that's, I mean, I, I was very passionate about it. I spent many years, like, designing these things. So all it is, is you're, it's a positive displacement uh, mud motor. So what happens is you're kind of actually pushing a pump the opposite way. So as a lot of people know what a pump is, what we're doing is we're actually using the, the force of the fluid to turn the pump. Yeah. And what that does is that enables us to, to generate uh, RPMs, downhole RPMs. Yeah, rotational where there, velocity. Yeah. yeah, where there's, where there's none originally. Right. And so you're, what you're doing is you're turning actual fluid energy into mechanical energy to make the drill string turn. And so what that gives you the ability is that if you have a bend in your, uh, in your assembly, which is your, in your mud motor, then what happens is when you pump the mud, the fluid down hole, it will actually create rotations where there's none above it. Yeah. So that way, if you have a bend, you can actually orient the bend and now you can steer. And uh, it's a very rudimentary mentality of like, how do you steer? So the very first mud motors, they actually, you would orient it from surface. So when the, the technology first right. developed, they would actually look, and we still do that to a certain extent when we're scribing mud motors as a directional driller. Yeah. Um, they still scribe it at surface, but they used to, to line up every single joint all the way in so they could steer it for one slide <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna paraphrase a few or a bunch of the terminology so yeah mud motors are it, it's essentially uh the the tool that todd just described is a tube it's a long tube uh in in steel pipe uh that basically transforms the pressure and the force exerted by a fluid into a rotational force that can be used to turn a bit, you know, similar to a, a drill bit that you might drill into your drywall or, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, like a handheld drill, right? It, it's literally a bit that, that removes material. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's, it's used on the end of a long string uh, or long uh, assembly of pipes that are screwed together. Um, and that, so you can pump fluid down the pipe and then transform this uh, liquid pressure or pressure in the liquid to a rotational force uh, that can turn a, a driblet. So that's, mm -hmm. that's did I paraphrase that? Yeah, that, that was that was yeah. that was really good explanation. Um, and so, that's I mean that's how we drill wells. Right? Yeah. We we put holes in the ground, but that's essentially like how we have decided. And then you you mentioned scribe. You know that's so that's yeah. again that's orienting uh, the the string of pipe. Yeah. That is, also, so the, the way we actually drill these things is almost using the, the best analogy is uh, is basically how people used to fly airplanes. Yeah. Because you're you're using uh, positional 
uh, what, what's it called? Uh, relative positional, uh, geez, I can't think of the word for it, <laughs> but anyway, you're, you're taking, you're literally taking the inclination and then you're taking the azimuth. So you know approximately where you are and then you're, you're figuring out your location based on how far you've gone since the last time you checked your location. And that's how people used to fly back in the day. And obviously flying got a lot better technology wise. So they have a much better idea of where they are. But um, unfortunately when you're drilling into the center of the earth. Drilling into the crust. Yeah, you, <laughs> literally into the you crust. have, you literally the best, you still have a very low idea of like how to determine exactly where you are other than to count how long your drill pipe is and to keep taking regular surveys to give you an idea of where you are. So it's a, uh, yeah, we're, we're using old technology, but it's, it's really advanced well, old technology. So what, what I love about your exposure to these tools and to this technology is you've, you've witnessed a progression and I, I love your view on this of technology throughout your career, I imagine, uh, which is really a, being present during the innovations uh, and, and the micro step changes that people have made to these tools. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong? No. Right. I mean, let's, so, so think about innovation, right? This occurs all the time. Uh, people sometimes think that innovation means like, oh man, yeah, no, like we've got this brand new idea and like the computer is the best yeah. new thing ever. And like, it's going to change the world. That's not what innovation is. Innovation is small incremental step changes that people make. They say, oh, well, we were doing it this way. What, what if we, you know, used three of these things instead of two? What if we changed, what if we did a square instead of a circle? What if we made mm -hmm. small changes to the tools that we're already using? Am I capturing that correctly? Yeah, yeah, and definitely. Um, and, you know, and a lot of the things you kind of said with the, the square and the circle and kind of mentality, like people tried making uh, a lot of different changes because, uh, you know, you kind of think that, hey, if you make a big step change, it could make a huge difference. And it's the truth, but it's such a hard environment. And the only environment that's comparable to the drilling environment is literally space. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like we're putting holes in the ground or we're putting spaceships uh yeah yeah we, putting ships in space yeah. we we cannot use electronics that are of any regular form they have to be basically designed to the highest spec and then they're still not high enough yeah so we go to the mill specs that are from the military and even the stuff that's that's graded to the very highest extreme they won't rate anything beyond 300 degrees fahrenheit right or anything that's like I mean, it's hard to really rate electronics to a certain G level and stuff like that. But like, so humans who are traveling to space are trained to get up to, I think it's about like seven or eight Gs right around there. Oh man. Yeah. And, um, so you gotta be in really good shape too. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. the downhole environment, we're talking about the, I mean, they can get up in the upwards of 400 degrees Fahrenheit and they can get, uh, upwards of over a hundred degrees. I mean, a hundred Gs for shocks. Yeah. So the it's, stuff so, that's yeah, designed, the, the really, really intensive, uh, forces exerted on the technology that we use to drill oil and gas wells. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of thought behind creating these tools to make them very robust. Yeah. Incredibly yeah. robust. Like yeah. the, it's the most difficult environment, the not even in space and no human can survive 
anywhere near the temperatures, the forces, or the G's involved in what happens downhole. And, uh, and so there's, I mean, we literally are going into the center of the earth blind because nothing that we put down there just for us to enable us to see what's going on will not survive or show us anything. Yeah. So it's, uh, I always, the, the further and the deeper I got into the drilling world, the more it just, it really uh, kind of took hold of me because I was, you know, kind of blown away and kind of uh, sucked into the, the realities of how difficult of a situation you're, 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 do, you're dealing with. And, uh, and, and that blows me away because you're, you're constantly being tested. And yeah. you're and you're having to expand your mind because you can't use your eyes to see what's happening. You have to use all your other senses. And Sorry, so I like this. This is uh, yeah. So again, Todd's background is very drilling centric. So he's he's drilled a ton of oil and gas wells all over the world. Very very uh, specialist on the drilling front in oil and gas, um, and very technically minded, mechanically minded. And so yeah, thinking about how we solve those problems is. Awesome. It's it's really challenging, uh, and many. I think this is a misconception that a lot of people have that uh, en- engineering has bounds. Yeah, right? uh, where you you can know things for certain, and you cannot know things. Yeah. Well, uh, and, yeah, I mean, and that's the that's the the truth of engineering. That's just the challenge of it. No matter in what capacity you're dealing with engineering is is your job isn't necessarily to know exactly what's happening, but your job is to use logic and reason to rule out what is not happening. Right. And then that way you can have a better idea of what's happening. And yeah. that's literally how we... Uh, that's how we build bridges. That's how we got to the moon. Mm-hmm. That's, 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 how we, how, that's how we do what we do. And it, I would argue we can do it but using logic and reason. <laughs> yeah. We can develop systems and methods and procedures that keep people safe and can effectively produce energy for everyone. Oh, for sure. Right? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, that's that's the whole goal and capacity of what engineering is, is that right. you, you have to, you don't know it all, and you have to always realize that you don't know it all. And you have to, as an engineer, if you ever say that you know it all, I, that's the <laughs> you're, last- You're wrong. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you're just that's wrong. the engineer I'd never respect. because. Yeah. Because I literally it's, feel it's like sci- he's, it, it's a theologian acting as a scientist. Yeah, he, yeah. he yeah, exactly. He does not understand everything that can happen. Like yep. there are so many things that can happen in any situation of anything that you're you're engineering, and your goal is to minimize the possibility of those things from occurring to as low as reasonably possible, and and to and to keep people safe and keep that even more as low as low as reasonably possible. Oh, man, yeah. So you're, I mean, you're dealing with that. numerous outcomes. You want to make sure that things go smoothly, but you can never guarantee it. And I feel like a lot of people that are not engineers always find that frustrating when dealing with us because we can never tell them everything's going to go perfectly or that. Well, yeah, there's, there's a, I think there's a communication barrier between engineers and the public where we engineers want to be very honest obviously most people want to be honest except attorneys (laughs) (laughs) uh they they, sorry transforming their truth but um yeah 
engineers want to be very honest and and characterize uh, their reality. And and when people say, well, what's going to be the outcome? There, most people approach. They they want to hear a certainty. They yeah, want to hear a yeah. certainty, they, and we and, can never. And they that. have they have they have an assumption that underlying that there will be variance in most outcomes and engineers actually characterize that variance mm -hmm. right yeah I'm, meaning well you know that the yardstick is 36 inches plus or minus uh, to 30 seconds of an inch yeah right you know uh, so giving a precision level and and when you're trained to think that way it's difficult then to communicate with some people and say well Yes, with this level of certainty, I can say that, you know, we will do things safely and effectively. And for most of the public, it, engineers approach and their safety factors is sufficient, but it's just, it's a communication barrier. Yeah. Right. Well, I, th I think one of the best analogies I kind of deal with is, uh, have you ever dealt with decision trees? So a decision trees oh, yeah. uh, is basically what you're doing is you're you're looking at any possible decision and you look at every outcome that could occur from that. And then what you have to do is on that, you have to figure out a probability that each decision could occur from it and what the cost implications are of if that occurred. And so what you're trying to rule out is Yes, these extreme situations. I'm, I'm working with that right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, working, you're aware of my situation. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, these extreme situations can occur, but you have to put a number to it in order and then a probability to it. So that way you decide, is it worthwhile for me to chase this decision and to design against it? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and is it reasonable? And then you rule out each one after another. And there's, I mean, sometimes 10 different possibilities that can occur from a certain situation. And, and then there's a few super low probability, super high cost scenarios that you just have to say, well, we literally cannot design for that because that so would cost you have, too do you have, much. Do you have a good example of, what, of a, like a really high impact, low probability outcome of an oil and gas project might be? Um, you know, I mean, like a simple one is, is uh, whether you will lose a BHA in the hole. Okay, so, so BHA, that's a bottom hole assembly. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the, like what we were talking about earlier, drill bits and motors and uh, the, the expensive components that are on the end of a string of pipe or an assembly of pipes that are screwed together that actually drill wells. Yeah. And so you might accidentally uh, lose this and, yeah, and the, way the that, surface of the earth yeah, and, and then not be able to recover it and have a capital loss. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, we're talking millions of dollars worth of assets left down hole, but it's yeah. that what, which then people are like, Oh man, oil and gas can like have all these subsidies. And it's like, no, the subsidies is we lost tools in the surface of the earth. <laughs> and yes, it's fair that we can write the, that off because we are taking a tremendous risk. Like anyone running that business, could effectively say, yeah, you well, can't, you that, can't even make sense, but you can't even write it off. You can't write it off you're, yeah, you're, that's true. You mean, you just, you, uh, you mean, you just have to absorb the losses. You mean, I, I don't, I feel like yeah. the word people, writing it people, off makes people, people don't understand that. Yeah. Yeah. You're, um, when people hear writing off, they, they look at it as from, they've seen too many banks and corporations do that kind of mentality where in our industry, you just absorb it. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's, we minimize our risks as much as reasonably possible in order so this doesn't happen because, I mean, unfortunately, one thing that's really good about that scenario is though it's cost millions of dollars, nobody is at risk because it happens downhole. 
So that's like one of those. Yeah, no one's at risk of being hurt. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's no lives at risk. There's all it is is just financial loss, and uh, and and you can you can at that point, yes, you have to you'll have to redrill that portion of the well, uh, and then carry on. And you know, I mean, you could try to fish it out, but most likely, if you lost it down there, it's probably stuck, and it probably won't, isn't coming. It doesn't want to come out. Yeah. So it's just one of those things. It's kind of like losing a spaceship in space or an explosion during takeoff. You know yeah, what I mean? You it's got a like, rocket that blows up and it's just gone. It's gone. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just gone and you got to yeah. move on and, and it's like disappointing and you just have to learn from the mistake and you have to, and then you adjust your decision tree probability statistics right at that moment. And you'd be yeah. like, okay, so apparently that's a higher probability than what I potentially wrote into it. But, but until you have a few of these incidents, you don't know what the probability is because the probabilities are determined by real world. Right. And uh, so like my experience when I started off, I started off heavy in the design side and I did design for four and a half years and I designed downhole tools, both on the completion side, then I went into drilling. And then after doing that, um, I really kind of got empowered into wanting to see how these things actually operate. It really drove me into wanting to be more involved at seeing them work so i design mostly so, motors. so design designing the tools that we use to drill oil wells mm -hmm. yeah all around the world yeah, yeah. Mo motors yes exactly and they're, they're done all around the world and um and and i also did a little bit of design work with the rotary steerable tools not as much but um mostly i was involved in the motor stuff uh, but the rotary steerable stuff still i i saw the technology so side ro of rotary steerable that's a different technology that uh we we use to drill oil wells that i mean we were talking about mud motors earlier that's again the tube that has the uh trans transforms uh fluid pressure to rotational motion mm -hmm. uh, and rotary steerable motors is a similar design but has a lot more components and the, is more robotic yeah and yeah exactly it's, it's it's like the for drilling it's it's the intro to electronics and robotics uh for drilling it's it's, it's a really cool design like yeah. I, in my opinion if, if you're into robotics like this it sounds simple it's a hard problem to solve mm -hmm. and the people that have solved this problem it's really cool if you if you like mechatronics or robotics at all google rotary serial motors yeah well there there is there's so much technology involved and some of the downhole stuff like uh that people are designing because you, for instance, if you're like, oh, okay, if you're going to drill something down hole, then you should have something that kind of crawls. Well, that doesn't work because everything that's crawling on the outside is going to get ripped off. Yeah. So because because the environment is so extreme that everything has to has to be very compact and uh, and very robust. So there are some applications yeah, where I mean, things we're, crawl. We're putting these things a mile to five miles, right? Or I don't know, kilometers, right? One to 10 kilometers below the surface of the earth. And then we're spinning them rapidly. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, hundred, hundreds of RPMs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, think about how fast a bike tire rotates and you know, you're spinning a string of pipe to literally extrude the surface of the earth. It's, it's phenomenal. Oh, so way it's fast, a, way it's faster a than a bike tire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a tremendously awesome engineering problem that we've solved. And yeah. I say we, meaning collectively humanity, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so. yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. So it's, it has been a huge achievement. And I think the rotor yeah. steerable tools, they are, you mean, they're a way of the future for sure. And, uh, and because of what we've learned with this, it has definitely gone into other technologies too. You know, I mean, the, the learnings we've, we've done 
for sure went backwards into other one other industries because we've been able to build uh, electronic chassises that are so robust that can handle pretty much any environment and it's amazing yeah it is yeah. It, it, it's it, mind-boggling yeah you and, you and i uh, as engineers that actually have like tried to build this stuff is uh we, we can a thousand percent appreciate what goes into it it's it's challenging but then when once you actually do it and see it it's it's really fun so Tom, i want to pivot a little bit um and talk more about your career okay. uh so we I mean, you've worked for Schlumberger. Uh, when when we met, you were at Noble Noble Energy, which has since been acquired by Chevron, uh, in the consolidation of the energy industry. Now you're at a small private equity company. Okay. Am, am I right with that? Yeah. So yeah. I'll, I'll kind of go through. I'll, I'll sure. give you the. I mean, the really quick spiel of my kind of career path. So I yeah. did. Uh, I did one year of engineering, design engineering in Calgary, then did three and a half years of engineering uh, in the UK, where I, I mean, was working in the downhole to drilling tools kind of grew my uh, desire to work in the field. So what I ended up doing was... And when we say in the field, it's literally where we drill the oil wells. Yes. Right? I, yeah, oh, I wanted to, wherever in the world that is. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I wanted to work on the actual drilling locations. Yep. Um, and then so after, from there, I went to U.S. land and um, working out of Oklahoma, uh, worked as a directional driller for a few years um, and drilled all over the U.S., um, that worked out really well uh, due to like life changes, having a child, which yeah. I mean, was fantastic. Uh, I mean, I love him so much. Uh, I ended up having to come into the office to kind of support my partner uh, uh, at the time, like my, my wife. And uh, so I came back into the office and worked as a kind of a coordinator where I would help kind of determine where we would send tools and personnel right. to different jobs and coordinate them. Where, and were you living in Oklahoma when you did that? When initially I was. Okay. Initially yeah. I was um, living in Oklahoma and then I ended up moving to Denver, still with Schlumberger, yeah. and then uh, moved into drilling engineering. Right. So I was the drilling engineering center manager uh, after that. So and initially working for a, a technology company that supported people who own the leases and assets that uh, actually develop the oil and gas assets and then eventually going to work and drill wells for the companies that uh, exploit the assets and, and uh, receive revenue from mm -hmm. uh, drilling wells. And that was my next transition. Right. So my next transition from there was to work over to uh, Noble Energy yep. as a drilling engineer. And uh, that's where I was drilling wells and kind of uh, being, I mean, uh, the, the way my analogy is, is being a drilling engineer, you're kind of a project manager of the drilling uh, scenario. So you you look at it from a, a revenue standpoint and you, you try to budget the whole operations of how much it should cost, assuming everything goes well. And then you have to plan for what if things don't go well and you try to yep. minimize your risks with your decision trees and other equipment you have on your rig to, uh, so that way your capital exposure is minimized and and things just go fairly well. So I started off drilling wells in Texas and then Oklahoma, uh, went to Marcellus, uh, Western Colorado, and then uh, Northern Colorado. Um, all, all of those within a, a fairly short period of time, uh, within, within a few years. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you characterize drilling engineers. It's like being a project manager. It, it, I compare it to building a house. You know, you, you mm -hmm. may not be designing uh, what 
well, sometimes you are designing what goes on the concrete, but uh, yeah, you can specify how tall the house needs to be and well, your final uh, approval of everything. Yeah, so like when you yeah. say you may not design what's going into the concrete, but at the same time as you are because but it's like you're if, ordering the pipes, you're ordering the yeah. electrical, you're ordering the roof, you're and then you're coordinating all of the components, right? I mean, you're a general contractor mm -hmm. that is coordinating all of the components that go into uh, the final product and then signing off on them. Yeah, and you know, I mean, and, and and that's where a lot of the risk is involved is because like even for somebody who's building a house, you know, I mean, if they're, they feel like they're over budget, they can try to save money by changing materials or be like, you know what, I don't need that much rebar over here, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is they're risking the integrity of the housing right. structure and everything. So, you know, I mean, it's the same decision tree that we were talking about before. It's your, your, you're making, you're making decisions that, that can add risk. And uh, I think a lot of people, they blindly walk into situations and don't realize how much engineering and how much horse trading, as you say, uh, happens in the backfield in a building that you don't even realize or oh, yeah. in a structure or you just, in you walk, I, I, that happens all the time, right? I mean, how many times have you crossed a bridge and not even thought about like what went into designing it? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh man, I bet there, there were thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of man hours that have gone into this technology. It's, it's wonderful. It's yeah. Awesome. Um, so you, you worked at Noble when, when we met, you were at Noble, um, mm -hmm. but you've since transitioned to a private equity company. Uh, yes. Well, let's, let's talk about Bison a little bit. Okay. So yeah. So after working at Noble, then I, I went back to the field for a little while and I worked as a well site supervisor and then yep. worked as a superintendent and I did that in Colorado and the Marcellus and then, and then went offshore as well. Uh, and then came back to Colorado. Um, and, uh, when, when and, were you working offshore? Uh, was that 2018? When were you? Uh, geez. No, I think it was longer ago than that. Okay. It would be more like 2016, 2017. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, stressful time in life. Yeah. In it, oil field. yeah. Oh yeah. It, it was right during uh, a hard point of the, the yeah. oil field, but yeah. I mean, honestly, the, the hard points of the oil field are They're the best. kind of, no, well, then they kind of all blend together now at this point. Right. Because, yeah. It's been so volatile. It's yeah. just, what, what is, what does it mean to work in oil and gas or yeah. in energy? Right. Well, yeah. it used, it used to be like two years of good times and two years of bad times and cycle, cycle, cycle. <laughs> now it's like now two months of good times and now we've got negative oil. Yeah. Or negative price. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and years of bad times. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I still love the industry and just, yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's still such a great industry. It just, it, it but it is. So, uh, so how'd you get, how'd you connected with the, uh, with the bison guys? Um, so what happened with bison was, um, so I'd, I'd heard about them for a while and I didn't want to make the move. I am very resistant to, to changes. I've only worked in three companies over my 19 years. Yeah, and it's, so, it's impressive, right? I think I've, I, I have worked for more companies than you have, and I'm ten years younger than you. <laughs> uh, so I am very, I'm, I'm very much uh, I, I, not, I'm not say afraid of change, but as like, as a true engineer, I kind of like work it out and then decide every time, like, no, I'd rather stay where I'm at. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, totally. I mean, yeah. they take care of me. They're always, they always treat me well. Um, I've always done well in the oil field, so never really felt the need to, to make changes. And then in this situation though, it, it was, my hand was kind of forced in a sense. So they wanted to move me to Houston and, uh, no, I was, noble one move you and you're mm -hmm. like, no, I don't want to move to Houston. Yeah. Well, it, like lots of love to all, all of our Houston guys and Houston listeners, but I don't know. We love Denver. We no, love well, it, to yeah. me, it was more of a, just a personal decision in the sense that like I was divorced at the time and, um, I, uh, had two kids and I, I kind of, 
made a lot of lifestyle decisions to follow them around the world. Oh yeah. And um and in this situation my kids were I mean, they're they're in Denver with me and I'm not gonna be able to convince my uh my ex and my children to move to Houston. So I made the decision, I said I was not willing to make the move. Uh they offered me a few different options of I mean <laughs> moving to Midland also as an as an option, which yeah. Which is still a move, though. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bless Midland. I love Midland. It's great. Yeah. It's, a, it's a wonderful part of the world. People people throw a lot of shade at Midland, and that's uh, yeah. It's unwarranted. <laughs> uh, no, I mean like yeah. the uh, one, one thing I really really love about people that work in oil and gas is we are so resilient, and we we love the places we work, even though the rest of the world kind of looks roundly upon the majority of the places yeah. like generally the oil fields located in as i like as, as i joke around with but pretty much the armpits of the world yep. you know what i mean like they are the the least uh attractive places from a person who doesn't work in the oil field uh but to us we see how great each one of them are because and it's because of the people it's not because of uh because they're in such a gorgeous tropical location or something. There's, there's right. a few exceptions like Kuala Lumpur or something yeah. like that. But well, I mean, living in Denver is not all. Or De- yeah, yeah, Denver. Denver is <laughs> one of the best cool. for sure. Denver is yeah. one of the best. But so no, but I love. So you you had an opportunity to make a career mm-hmm. change and, and make a move, but you uh, you prioritize family, which I I'm a huge fan of. Right, family first. Uh, the people in your life that you support and that support you mean everything. And so, yeah, you, you decided to stay in Denver. How how do you? Uh, end up actually getting connected to anyone at Bison? Uh, well, I had a, so a few people that were kind of like advocating for me and so they okay. kind of got my... So uh, your network. You, yeah. you knew people who knew people who were mm-hmm. running a company and they needed a position filled and yes. you were available. Yeah, and yeah, and that's how the, the networks work. And it was kind of, it was really funny because the, the same day uh, I found out that they were moving my job to Houston, I didn't want to go. I had two phone calls they both say they were random i don't believe either one was random but both of them happened <laughs> two hours before i called into that meeting and both of them offered me jobs one at a huge oil company and one at this private uh equity company yeah and uh i whether it was random or not it was it was fate to me because then as soon as i had this meeting i already knew my decision was that I was going to test the market out and I, I wasn't going to take the move. I wasn't going to risk it because yeah. I didn't want the move. Um, I was afraid to be unemployed, but I felt in that situation that I had enough connections that I uh, could find something in Denver and stay in Denver. And so I ended up working at Bison uh, as the drilling manager there. Um, and you mean small company, we're not drilling a lot of wells, but we're just, we're growing it. And, um, and then fairly, Early on, uh, they, they they liked the way that I kind of managed my uh, my location abilities. Yeah. So they uh, they kind of made me. I mean, I mean, they. I want to say almost like a frac superintendent in a sense, or because I was a well site supervisor to manage the frac, and that was my introduction to frac because I didn't know frac at the time and completions. So so um, let's let's break that that down a little bit. So you you were hired into a role. At a private company. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, first of all, you you made made a move away or elected to not uh, have your life dictated by the man by right a corporation that mm-hmm. said, "Well, we need you over here now." So, 
change, uproot yourself and change your life. And you said, no, that doesn't work. And you, yeah. you took a risk and, and moved away from it. And I think, I think that's a strong message to a lot of young professionals. And that, that's, you know, hey, you are the creator of your own universe and environment. You can do it. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was super scared to do this change. Yeah. And, like, I, and I do want to kind of acknowledge that. Like, even with, um, let me think now, so that would be, be almost four years ago. Yeah. And uh, so I'd be 15 years into my career and I was super nervous about doing it. And, and a lot of the reason why is because as a drilling engineer, when you have problems, if you, if you have any kind of struggles with what you're dealing with, it is awesome to have a network of other drilling engineers down the hall from you that can, right. and also a drilling manager down the hall from you that, that uh, have experienced a lot of other incidences. And, and a lot of times in our industry, you have to kind of go through rough things to learn how to handle certain oh, circumstances. Oh man, if everything's easy and cookie cutter, you never learn. You never. Can. Yeah, and and you don't, you know, and and that's the the scary, like the the scare factor of it is that when you go out to a private equity company and you are the entire drilling department, yep. you are you don't have that network down the street, and if you haven't built up that network with friends that you feel comfortable enough to call and you know when to call certain people, that you're literally on your own and you are hundred yep. percent. On your own, yeah. And Good luck. <laughs> yeah, a drilling rig, a drilling rig burn rate is like we, we what we call a burn rate is how much money you spend on a day, whether they're doing anything or not. Yeah. So whether it's like whether, whether you're making a hole or not, you if you're drilling mm -hmm. or not, you're how much and it varies based on the size of the rig and where mm -hmm. you're in the world. And I mean, right now, it's what's, the, what's it, your burn rate? It's it's about thirty five thousand dollars. Okay, so that's that. I view yeah, that as thirty five thousand dollars. Yeah. So that's in Colorado, but. Throughout other parts of the world, it, when I was working in South Texas, and I'm sure you've done this also, but it was fifty to sixty thousand mm dollars -hmm. a day. Right, we got our cost down uh, to forty forty five. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, but in the Permian right now, or in West Texas, it's more like seventy to eighty thousand dollars a day. And then mm -hmm. offshore, shoot, it can be a over, million dollars. Over a million dollars. <laughs> right? If you're, if you're on yeah. a drill ship, if you're on a drill ship, it's it could yeah, be over, you're, you're spending a million dollars a day, which is I mean, it, it takes a lot of people to do nothing. Even, yeah. And if they're if they all they're doing is floating the drill ship to a new location, it still costs them a million dollars because you still have a hundred and thirty people on board. Well, actually, on on a, when you're floating over to a new location, you want to have one hundred and thirty because you'll like release a lot of the people on on the drill ship because they're not essential. But then you have to helicopter them off and all this other stuff <laughs> yeah. just so that way you don't have as many people yeah. there. So you still spend a lot of money to get rid of these people. But so you, maybe you'll have, uh, I don't think I ever was on the drill ship without uh, 100 people on board. So, but the most I ever saw was maybe 135-ish. Yeah. And that was, that was a pretty packed Oh man, ship. it's crazy! It's crazy yeah. how many people it takes to, to run that operation. Yeah, and then yeah, and there it was over a million dollars a day, and yeah. you know, I mean, and that's scary because so when I was drilling back in the day when things were really wide open and busy in the oil field, I was looking after three drilling rigs, and the burn rates were higher because times were bigger. Yep. So our burn rate then at that was about fifty thousand dollars a day, and so now I'm spending about one hundred fifty thousand dollars a day no matter what was happening. And then I have like every the, hour the, of every day. Yeah. People are like, no, be in the office nine to five. And you're like, uh, no, yeah. I'm in the office 24 seven every day of the year. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're literally scared to, uh, to fall asleep. Sometimes and miss to sleep. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've, I've had this experience in my career where you're, you're supervising remotely operations that are spending so much money that you're literally afraid to sleep. Yeah. You, there's, yeah. there's serious stuff going on and you're worried about issues happening. And you're afraid to fall asleep because 
you're the support person for the guys on location. And if they have problems, they have to call you to make sure that you can help them, but you have to respond quick enough that you not only keep them safe. I mean, I, I, I feel like I always empowered my guys to, if there was ever a safety incident, you just do what you had to do. But at the same time as they technically need to have uh, coverage for their decisions. Yeah. And uh, so they're worried from a liability standpoint. So they want to, they want to get a hold of me before they make any decision. But you know, it's one of those things where I have to get woken up and get clued into the situation. So I want them to respond first from a safety standpoint first. And then we talk about the money side of it. Absolutely. Right afterwards when they, when, when I can understand the situation after I've woken up, for five minutes <laughs> like you know? hey guys i will call you right back if i if you don't hear from me in six minutes call me again. no no <laughs> i fell back asleep <laughs> no it, it, it takes like it takes a couple minutes to get filled in on yeah, the situation definitely. because you can't make you so can't make i'll characterize it i feel like we've we've scattered a little bit but that's okay because i love the conversation we so you you worked in a very specific engineering discipline in upstream oil and gas you you had drilled a lot of wells which mm-hmm. is a it's a job. It's it's a it's an attribute of the oil and gas industry, and you were technically very very competent at it, um, which is awesome. I've leveraged your expertise multiple times when I've been drilling wells. Just like you mentioned, you know, it's helpful to have people down the hall, but if you don't have someone down the hall, then you'd better have friends that know what the hell's going on. Um, and then you got hired at this private company that's smaller, and mm-hmm. they said, well, what you know, we need somebody to do this managerial role that's much more project management. Uh, it's it's much more operations and even though you don't have explicit experience as a background in that uh we still want you to be in charge of that responsibility right so you you started as the drilling manager at bison and then uh got promoted to take on more and more responsibilities yeah it, which, it kind of right transitioned I, to drilling completions yeah and then uh from that moved into vp of operations right so yeah. so you are in charge of how the company is spending money operationally and project managing all of the issues. And uh, I mean, it's, it's one step below COO, right? Where you may mm-hmm. not be as involved in the finance or legal side of contracts, but anything, every dollar that's spent operationally in order to execute on projects, you are accountable for. Yes. Yeah, so Are you characterizing that correctly? That is correct. Yeah. 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 I mean, congratulations on additional responsibility. Like, yeah, prestigious, but oh man, you got a job now. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I characterize it that way because I, I think a lot of people view their careers and their perspective uh, inadequately and uh, inaccurately uh, in, in that they feel like they have to have, okay, well, I need five years of experience in this job and then I need 10 years of experience in this job and then eventually I'll become an executive. And I, I don't think that's true. And if you sit down and do the math and you have that approach, then you're never going to be promoted or achieve the level of prestige, responsibility, career success that many people aspire to. You know, you, you have to accept that you won't have the experience when you get promoted into roles. But if you have relationships with people that trust you, then you'll be able to leverage your prior experience, learn new things as you go, and then mm-hmm. build build a team around you that can support each other and I, be successful. Yeah. And as an engineer, I think that we are probably our worst enemy in that respect because we feel like there is a number of years that Absolutely. we want to be doing yeah. something before we move up because, 
we want to we want to move up to it when we feel like we're we're uh, technically ready for that next step. Right. Which actually, but, I, I I despise this mentality in in the corporate world, really. Which is, you know, you need a number of years of experience to to know things, and it's like uh, that's not entirely true. You know, mm-hmm. as an engineer, physics is physics. True. You know, like science is science, and like the reality of the world. Yes, experience helps. Years of experience helps, but it. There are many people that have twenty years of experience, but they've been doing the same job, so they have twenty years of one year of experience. Mm-hmm. Right? I think yeah. about that correctly. Yeah, and I, yeah, I would agree with that. Like a, a lot of people, uh, if you work too long in the same job, you kind of get stale, and you, you're not like not saying that you stop learning, but your rate of learning definitely decreases. And so you're not being challenged uh, in enough ways to kind of grow your your knowledge base. And so that's one thing that I feel like my I've done fairly well by mostly because of uh, life changes and, and industry changes than it was more out of like what my goal was myself. But it worked out yeah. really well. The only the only part of my career that worked on plan was I when I left the UK, I wanted I made a five year plan to myself to be a drilling engineer in five years and I didn't six. So, <laughs> so that was the nice. only part out of my 19 year yeah. career that actually worked as a plan and everything go. else. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, honestly, like right now, I'm working in a position higher than I ever thought was possible because right. I thought the highest I would ever be able to achieve within the oil field would be drilling manager. Uh, just because that's my, um, that was always my background. And I, I always wanted to stay in my strength in the sense that I, I feel like specialization was my mentality of how I was going to keep myself employed and valuable throughout my career. Because you I mean, I, I guess there's a lot of it was built up from my, my dad beforehand and that I really respected him as he was also an engineer and yeah. because his because of how strong he was as an engineer in his in his subject, and it wasn't the oil field; it, it was designing heating and air conditioning, HVAC, right? yeah, yeah HVAC, yeah. yeah. And uh, and he knew it from every side. He he'd worked as you know all the way down to a journeyman plumber and gas fitter, and uh, and owned his own company, and as an engineer, and then as a design engineer, he he did it from every side. The same kind of mentality that I did myself to the oil field, and. Um, I, I think that is really valuable because when you speak about something and you know it from every side, your level of confidence of what you're talking about is, you I mean, you, you just have a lot more understanding and, and confidence in decisions that you're making. Yeah. And so when people kind of press you on a situation, you, you don't fumble. You know, I mean, you know when to put your, to dig your heels in and say, no, it's got to be this way. So, but transitioning now to a role that you, you don't have that level of mm-hmm. expertise, but you've, you've built relationships and proven competency to people that trust you, right? Yes. Your management team. It, it, it's a different skill set then. I mean, you, while you may not be as technically competent, you are radically uh, proficient at project management. Yeah. Right. You know, so, that's, that's, and that's and a that, different skill set. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and that's a really, uh, kind of good kind of way to transition it into that is, so now I'm dealing with, uh, with, uh, with, you I mean, completions engineering and production engineering and, 
and all these things. And I have engineers reporting up to me in these different capacities uh, and facilities design. And, and I don't have experience in, the, in those things. And so now when they look at me to make decisions or to I kind of give approval on certain things that I'm doing, it's really difficult because I don't have that background. Right. But it's, uh, but it's, but it's also, you have to have a lot more trust in their competency. Mm -hmm. Yes. But it's great because, because of having so much confidence in what I did in my, in, in the drilling and, and dealing with that is I feel like it's, it's helped me kind of be able to tell if the engineers working for me know what they're talking about in a sense. Sure. And then kind of assess them out a little bit and tell when they're like confident or not confident. And then, and then ask the right questions. And that's really what it's all about is being a manager is not like knowing what's going on, but knowing enough to ask the right questions to check their level of confidence in what they're designing or how they're handling a situation. Right. And then, uh, and then being able to assist them through that because if they can't, if I ask the right questions, and they can't defend the situation. As I always say as an engineer, if I can't if I can't give somebody a good explanation of why I'm doing something, I shouldn't be doing it. I literally totally. it doesn't matter how educated I they are on subject. That should apply in most of life. <laughs> yeah, it really should. Like I feel like that. But that's like to me it's an yeah. engineering mentality because that's that's how we are designed and uh, and how our brain functions. But if you if you can't defend it, you should never get defensive because if you cannot defend why you're doing something and it doesn't matter what the question is or how dumb it is or who's asking it, oh, yeah. if you can't defend it, you literally should question why you're making the decision. And because you have to at all times make sure that you have thought of every possible outcome and made sure that you are confident in your decisions. And, uh, and so my job as a manager is just to ask the right questions and challenge them in the right ways and make sure that they've thought of everything. And then once we kind of talk it through it without even me being a technical expert on their subject matter, then I say, yeah, you're good to go. You're good to go. Go ahead with it, you know? And then we just move ahead with the project and then, uh, and, and that's all there is to it. And, and it's, it's taken me being questioned myself in my own, uh, subject of, of expertise in order to feel confident to ask other people right. the same questions. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love it. So we've covered a lot today. It's, it's fantastic. We, we talked about some really technical things. We talked about career transitions and emphasizing the importance of you know, prioritizing family, but also being able to navigate professional and career landscapes. Um, let's, let's just touch real briefly on uh, kind of what Bison's trying to accomplish from uh, a business model. Um, and how they're helping to produce energy for uh, America and the world, and and uh, and then we can we can wrap up and you can go play hockey and oh, great. unless you want to BS a little bit about your water polo days and what uh, I, think that, I think that's way too <laughs> too far back. Fair. But, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the um, you mean what what Bison's trying to accomplish? So you mean the model of private equity oil companies has changed and, and for the positive from my point of view. Yeah. Back in the day, the way that they used to do is used to drill a handful of wells, delineate your acreage in order to prove kind of like the outer extremes of your acreage position to show people that it's still good acreage. So that way they, everybody can kind of make a model of what, how, what your acreage is across your, all of your acreage across your whole position. And then, and then they buy it for the mentality of drilling it. 
but you really at that point you don't actually have any value because you have very little oil production you're barely an oil company you have crappy facilities you have you've you've done everything on like yeah. a really one of my, one of my mentors characterizes it as uh uh, two guys or three guys with a cell phone and a laptop driving around pickup trucks having an oil company, right? Yeah. And I, the analogy that I like to use is uh, it all, there were a bunch of people, individuals, organizations over the past 10 to 20 years that would go out and try and buy a house uh, analogously, right? An oil and gas lease, aka a house in an up-and-coming neighborhood mm-hmm. right? or an existing na- oil field, but kind of buy it on the fringe of the suburb. Um, and then hope that, you know, that other people would also buy more houses around them or more oil and gas mm-hmm. leases and, and that their property would increase in value. Yeah, right. exactly. And so it's, it's that mentality of like, I mean, and it's very valuable in the sense that it, 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 they are able to take risks that large oil companies cannot to kind of prove up the fringe anchorage and they can also uh, operate at a much lower cost, but they, they can't do it uh efficiently to scale like the big guys can so they just they're basically setting themselves up at all times to get bought out but that model fell apart probably seven or eight years ago and uh and people are now not no longer really able to flip it there's there's the occasional case yeah, there's where no golden flip right that's yeah man we're gonna fix up this house uh, that that model worked when in, an, in a rising oil price environment not anymore yeah, and so now everybody actually has to operate the well, and they have to like be like, true operators, like run a good business, like yeah, actually, actually make money with their business. <laughs> they have to be oil companies. Yeah, you know, what I mean, yeah, it's really yeah. awkward. But you, when you say you're an oil company, actually now you have to be an oil company. <laughs> know, you know, so what I mean, it's bizarre. super awkward. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so so now we are in a phase of where we no longer are kind of looking at, at every opportunity to sell. We're now looking to return our money drill your and then yeah exactly drill our returns and then if somebody buys us they'll buy us because of our oil production and because the revenue that they can see due to our oil production not because of acreage that's unproven yeah or maybe not unproven but proven but undrilled acreage yeah less less certain yeah yeah i love it this has been wonderful thanks for letting me uh capitalize your time on on this beautiful saturday morning here in Colorado. Um, yeah, I, I can't wait to uh, have many, many more of these conversations offline uh, with you, but also, yeah, ha- hanging out and snowboarding, doing all the fun, st- fun things that we love to do in uh, Colorado. So, well, Thanks for having me, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Always great. Absolutely. Thanks, Steve.